0: Some of you may uh, remember back in the 1980s, a popular song by George Harrison, formerly of the Beatles. The song uh, was called, I've Got My Mind Set On You. Uh, A few of you will remember this shot to number one. The lyrics are as follows. I've got my mind set on you. I've got my mind set on you. I've got my mind set on you. I've got my mind set on you, right? And then he goes on to say, it's going to take... Uh, a whole lot of money, right? A whole lot of spending money. It's going to take plenty of money to do it, 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 to do it right, right? And then he sings it again. Uh, it's going to take a whole lot of time and I've got my mind set on you. An amazingly popular song in the year that it was released, but as you uh, no doubt have noticed, it's a bit repetitive. And so actually the parody artist Weird Al Yankovic did his own version of the song that a few of you may remember called this song is just six words long, right? Song is just six words long, just six words long. And then, of course, in the verses, he says, but I'm making a whole lot of money, right? A whole lot of spending money. And that's the uh, theme of his parody. And of course, he is getting at uh, something that we notice about popular music all the time. It's repetitive, The same words are repeated sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50 times, the same phrases, over and over and over again. One of the most common complaints that people, in fact, sometimes have about our modern worship music is it's repetitive, right? The old 7-11 joke, seven words repeated 11 times constitutes the whole song, And, and we kind of laugh at that concept of how repetitive our music is. On the other hand, sometimes repetition can help us to remember things that are important, right? Uh, Sometimes repetition is good. So when you were in elementary school, the odds are that you repeated certain things you needed to remember, your multiplication tables. Three times one, three times two, three times three. And you said them over and over and over again until they were locked in your brain. Or the periodic table, which none of you remember now, but when you were in fourth or fifth grade, you said these elements over and over and over and over again until they were locked into your head. Sometimes repetition can help us to lock in important concepts. If you're trying to remember Scripture, you are likely to say a verse... 10, 15, 20, 30 times until it sticks in your brain. So most of you have John three sixteen in your brain because when you were in Sunday school, you said it over and over and over again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you can say it to this day because of how often you've heard it, how often it's been repeated. Now, sometimes the Bible itself is repetitive. There are some times in which phrases and key concepts are stated over and over and over again to help us remember critical ideas. This is true perhaps in no greater way than we find in Psalm 136, which we're going to look at this morning. We're going to take a break from the book of Acts. We'll be back in Acts next week. Psalm 136 is the most repetitive psalm in the entire Psalter. Out of 150 Psalms, this one is the most repetitive because there is a phrase repeated in every single verse, 26 times. Depending on the translation you are looking at, it may say something like this, your love endures forever, or your faithful love is everlasting. Over and over and over again in the second half of each verse, we get this phrase, your steadfast love endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. We're actually going to read all of them in just a moment, and you will get a sense of how this repetition can stick in your brain. Now, why is it that he says that so many times over the course of one chapter? Well, here's why. Because he wants us to know something important. You know what he wants us to know? His love endures forever, right? Uh, The word he uses for love here is a great Hebrew word that is hesed. Hesed. It's a word used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. What it refers to is God's covenant love, God's loyal love, which is why some of your translations will say something like your steadfast love or your faithful love. It's a really hard word, actually, to translate in English. But the idea behind it is that out of his loving character, God has made commitments to his people, and he loves his people so much that he will never drop those commitments that he has made. So when you and I think about steadfast love, probably the greatest human illustration of it is what? Marriage. The hesed, the everlasting love of God, is supposed to be reflected in the marital relationship, right? So you enter, perhaps, into marriage because you feel love toward another person. But you know, of course, over time, those feelings of love will go up and down. And so you go back to what? Well, I made a covenant. I made a commitment to love this person till death do us part. As long as I am able to love, I will love this person. That is the concept of hesed. God says as long as he exists. He will love. His steadfast love endures, and the Hebrew word is olam, forever and ever, from generation to generation. And so what the psalmist wants us to nail down in our minds is that God's love never, ever, ever, ever fails. And so he says it over and over, and over again. At this time of year, we are prone, of course, to thank God for all that he has given us. So uh, perhaps you sat down at the Thanksgiving table and you gave thanks to God for your family, for your home, for uh, your financial situation, if it is good, for the food around your table, for your kids, for all of those things that make your life seem and feel worthwhile. But the question is, when we sat at the Thanksgiving table, did we look at God himself and say, God, thank you for you? for your character, right? Because the stuff that we have, uh, even the people that we have might go away. But where the psalmist directs our attention is that in the midst of trial, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of anxiety or despair, we can come back to the reality that the faithful love of God endures forever. So, from eternity past into eternity future, God expresses his love to his people through creation, through his faithfulness in history, through salvation. And it is a love that will keep going and going so that the greatest antidote to fear, to despair, to sadness, The greatest antidote is to lock our minds and hearts on the steadfast, faithful, powerful love of God, most deeply expressed when he gave Jesus Christ. To die out of love for his people and rise again as a promise that for all who are in Christ, we can trust that his love endures forever. All right, so we're going to look at Psalm 136, this morning. Now, I I need to talk about something before we read it. Okay? Here's, Here's what would happen probably in the Israelite culture. This was a call and response type of psalm. So when they would enter into worship, the worship leader, maybe a priest or a Levite, would read the first line of each verse, and then the congregation would respond by saying, his faithful love endures forever. So we are going to have some participation from all of you this morning. Now, I'm going to make it easy on you. I'm not going to make you do it in Hebrew, okay? That's one thing. Uh, Secondly, I'm actually going to make it real easy in that I'm going to only have you say one word, and that is the word forever. So uh, sometimes at night, my kids will ask if we can read this psalm before bed when we read the scripture. And that's the word that they yell to remind us that God's faithful love endures not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but forever, forever and ever and ever. So I'm going to begin reading. And here's the thing. I will know if uh, you're faking it. right? I can tell from here if you're kind of moving your lips. I will be able to hear just by crowd response, and I don't want us to have to pause and read a verse again, right? Because there's 26 of them. So uh, I need to hear you, particularly children. Uh, I know there's a lot of kids in here. Yell as loud as you can, uh, because that will make your parents feel that they should be yelling also, uh, because they don't want to feel like they're lagging behind you. Uh, The other thing I'll tell you is we're going to get to about verse 17, and you're going to start to feel kind of tired of this, Keep going, all right? This is a commitment, much like marriage. So uh, you may get halfway through and think, what have I signed up for? Keep going because uh, you're going to be glad when we hit the end of it. All right, so here we go. Uh, Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures. All right, awesome. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures. For the sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures. And Og, a king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures. Amen. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures. Amen. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures. Amen. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures. Amen. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures. Amen. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures. Amen. All right. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. That was awesome. Okay. So we are going to walk through the rest of this then, and, and we're going to break down. How does the psalmist then uh, detail this concept of God's steadfast love enduring forever? And here's where he begins. He says: first of all, you can thank God for his character. All right, so he says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then that refrain is steadfast love endures forever. And he goes on and he says, give thanks to the God of gods and give thanks to the Lord of Lords. So he roots his thankfulness first and foremost in the fact that God is two things. God is powerful and God is good. All right. God is good. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. Meaning he does everything right. And in the context of the Israelite nation, it would have been extremely comforting to them to know that he is for us, that God is on our side, and that whatever happens, whatever enemies surround us or anxieties we face, we can trust that God does everything correctly. We sang earlier that everything works together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans chapter 8. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good, but it does mean that in the grand scheme of God's plan, he works all things unto good so that when we take the long view, we can always trust that God is good, and secondly, that he is powerful. He is the God over all gods. He is the Lord over all lords. There is no other God in the nations surrounding Israel who has any power. There is one God, and he rules over all. So that here's here's what happens as we root ourselves in that character of God, then when we are facing enemies or anxiety or sadness or fear for the future or trouble, we can look and we can say, I know that God is good and I know that God is powerful. Because what are the two questions that you and I most likely face in the midst of trial? One is this. Does God care? Is God good? Is the reason this is happening to me because God somehow is no longer good? The second question that we often have is, can God do anything about it? Or has God taken his hands off the wheel? And the psalmist begins by rooting our praise of God in this belief that he is good and he is strong. (coughs) Excuse me, so that he is on your side. And that for those who are his people, He is working all things unto good. (coughs) When I was a a child, my least favorite chore at our house, excuse me, my least favorite chore at our house was when I had to go out into the backyard and empty the skimmer baskets on our pool. And here's why. I usually had to do that chore at night. (coughs) And as I would walk out into the backyard to pull out these baskets and empty out the leaves, uh, I had to go around behind a very large evergreen tree that was in our yard so that I was cut off uh, from sight of the house. As Chris talked about earlier, evergreen trees never die. So summer, winter, fall, whenever, this thing was huge and it would block my view of the house, and I was terrified of going out there at night, particularly when I was 8, 9, or 10. And I began even to have nightmares about this chore, of going in the backyard. So I remember vividly having a dream that I was out there emptying the skimmer and a man leapt over our fence in one bound and dragged me to the bottom of the pool, right? I remember having a dream that as I was returning (coughs) from doing this chore, a man walked out the back door and just slowly pushed me into the pool, right? And so I was terrified of this chore. So what I would do after a while is before I would empty the skimmers, Those of you who have kids know what I did. I would go find my dad. And I would say, Dad, will you come outside and just stand out there while I empty the skimmers? Those of you who have kids also know how reluctantly at times my father wanted to do this, right? Because he had other things going on. But he would come and he would stand there. And all of a sudden, (coughs) the whole situation changed for me. It was still just as dark. I still was technically out of sight of the house but I really believed that as long as my dad was standing out there, even if that guy jumped over the fence, my dad could bat him back over to the other side, right? He could win. And I knew that dad was on my side, right? So I had the strongest person in the universe watching me empty the skimmers. That changed the whole dynamic of the situation. All of a sudden, the darkness didn't make me afraid anymore even being out of sight for a couple of moments didn't make me afraid because I knew my dad was just on the other side of that tree. He could hear me. Everything changed. This would have been a critical concept for the nation of Israel and this little sliver of land when they were always surrounded by enemies to know that the one God who is good and more powerful than any other gave you the land, gave you a relationship with him, and he's on your side. And so he begins by rooting this reality in their minds to say his love endures forever because he is that sort of God. And that theme weaves its way through the Old and the New Testaments alike. Look at First John chapter 4 for just a moment. First John chapter 4, you are from God little children, and have overcome them. That is the enemies of God, the spirits opposed to God. You've overcome them. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see that? The God who is in you, the God that raised Jesus from the dead and called you to himself, he is bigger than the spirits of evil that fill our world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. All right. God is love. God is great and God is love. And so in the simplest of terms, Psalm 136 says, this is where we begin to recognize that the antidote to our fears is antidote to despair is to look at God and say he is good and he is strong. And then he walks through how we know that. And he's going to give three lines of evidence for how we know that our loving God is strong enough to enforce his love forever, to have a love that endures forever. So we thank him for his character. And then he goes on and he says, thank him For what he's made. You thank him for creation. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens. He spread out the earth above the waters, made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. He says, look, you can look simply out at the world around you and you can see the love of God, the character of God. This is what Romans 1 tells us, that his divine power and his invisible attributes are made known, his eternal nature is made known uh, from the beginning through what has been made so that we can look at what has been made and know what kind of God we serve, that he is a God that created the world out of his love for his people. And so the psalmist says, look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the sky, look at the stars, look at the waters. If we do not believe in a God of love and power, then the universe makes no sense at all. Uh, There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose. And that's not just me saying that. Let me read you a quote from Richard Dawkins, the most prominent atheist writer uh, of our day. He says this, in the universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Merry Christmas. (laughs) If there is not a good and loving God, then everything we see in the world is random, without design, without good, without evil, without purpose. And yet the psalmist says, look at the world. That's not the, the kind of world that we see. Psalm 19, the heavens are what? Telling of the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, night after night, so that when we look at the world, we see the love of God, who said, I've provided everything so you can live. And beyond that, given you beauty to enjoy. Uh, When you see this, what do you think? Uh, You know there was a painter behind this painting the Mona Lisa. You know that Leonardo da Vinci painted it. Maybe you begin to reflect about Leonardo da Vinci and what sort of man he may have been to paint this, right? When you see this, you think of Van Gogh, right? And you think, what sort of man would he have been to paint this, right? And, and, it, and it draws your eye and it's beautiful and you reflect perhaps on the painter. Uh, when you see this You reflect maybe on the maker or makers. Maybe Steve Jobs comes to mind. Maybe Apple comes to mind. And you think about the maker of that technology. And you think because somebody had an idea and a vision, I never will be bored again. Right? I don't even have to talk to anybody ever again because of their creativity. And you think of the creator of such a device. What about when you see this? Do you think about no man made this? came from the hand of God. This is actually Lake Pleasant in upstate New York in the middle of the Adirondack uh, Mountains, Uh, one of my wife and my favorite places to go on vacation. We've been there a few times. And you see that and you, you say, let me reflect upon the love of a God that would make a sunset, a lake, and mountains like that for us to enjoy, an atmosphere that is perfectly designed for us to live, planet that is made for God's people. Why? Because he loves us. The God of the Bible, in fact, is the only God in all of the religions that you will find who creates because he loves. All right, and here's what I mean. Uh, if you look at Allah, for example, the God of Islam, uh, Allah, it says he, he is a loving God, but here's the problem. Allah had nobody to love before he Created the world, right? Our God instead has eternally existed what? As a trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So He interacted in love amongst the members of the trinity before time began, before there was a world. The only way that Allah can love is after He creates. You know what that means? It means that in order to love, He needs people. Our God doesn't need anybody to be loving. He was loving, He is loving. He will be loving from eternity past to eternity future so that what we see in creation is an outflow of his love that in the Trinity, as they express love as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then God says, I want to share this love with a universe that I create. And so he speaks and creates out of love to give us lives to know him and creation to enjoy him. And so the psalmist directs our attention and says, just look around, and you'll find his love endures forever from the beginning of time. So that when we feel sad, anxious, fearful, angry, we go back to the love of God that gave us life. His love endures forever. And then the psalmist continues and says, it's not just creation, it's also his faithfulness, his faithfulness throughout history. Look at verses 10 through 22. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, made Israel pass through the midst of it, he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage and a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. He goes to two lines of history in order to uh, talk about the faithful love of God. One is the Exodus itself. He says, "Pharaoh drowned in the sea, and God split the sea open for you, and you walked through on dry land." And then Pharaoh drowned, and God's love endures forever. Then he goes to the conquest of the nation of Israel. And he says, God went before you and he removed the inhabitants of the nation. As we were reading this psalm, it may have felt a little odd to you that after I said things like he killed great kings, we said, and his love endures forever, right? Remember Sion, he killed him too. His love endures forever, right? And Og, remember that nasty Og? He killed Og too. His love endures forever, and it may have felt a little incongruous to you to shout about the love of God as we simultaneously read about his destruction of those in the nations. Why does the psalmist bring it back? Because God's judgment and destruction upon his enemies is a part of his love for his people. A loving God... In the final analysis, when we take the long view of history, cannot allow his enemies to demolish and destroy the relationship of love that he has with his people, and the psalmist says, if you go back into history, what you'll find is that when God makes a promise to his people, he keeps that promise, even when it means the destruction of his enemies, right? And God is a God of grace. And love, and we see that in Jesus Christ that he calls all men to know him and he gives opportunity to all men (coughs) to trust him. But in the final analysis, even his judgment is required by his love. And so the psalmist says, look, the God who has always been faithful will continue to be faithful in the future. We have one child uh, who, we have three children, but we have one child in particular who uh, sometimes worries about dinner a lot. At breakfast time, occasionally, this particular child will say to us, what's for dinner? And sometimes we don't know, right? And, And we'll try to explain to her, we haven't thought about dinner yet at this point. What you can't see, child, is that under the surface of our relative placid calm on our faces, we're just kind of kicking like mad to keep this whole thing afloat, right? And we haven't thought about dinner, I'm so sorry. And she'll say, but but what are we going to eat? We say, but I, I don't know. And she may say, well, are we going to eat? Right? And we'll say, let's rehearse history for a moment. Okay? Did we eat dinner yesterday? Yes. Did we eat dinner the day before? Yes. Right? And by now she sees where this is going and is more reluctant to answer the question, have we eaten dinner every day of your up till now relatively short life? Has there ever been a day you can remember that we got to dinner time and said, no dinner, right? It's never happened. So can you trust that tonight and tomorrow there will be food on your plate? Right? Okay. Okay. And I often think of that when I, when I read a, a psalm like Psalm 136, because in the midst of our anxiety and our trial and our fear, we are tempted to look and go, but, 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 but God, you said you're good. Do you really mean that you are, you are good, right? Are you really going to work out for your good and mine, what's happening in my life right now? And the psalmist says, let's take a look at history. What did God do? And they go, oh, yeah. We were in slavery for a really, really long time, and then God parted the sea and brought us across it. Uh, We got to the border of the promised land, and we looked around, and there were all of these nations, and and you remember uh, that 10 of the spies who went into the land said, they are huge, and we're like little grasshoppers in their sight, and what did God do? God destroyed those giants so you could go in the land. Every day of your life, every year of the history of God's people, from eternity past to eternity future, God has led you with his love and power. He has been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. He will not change. And you can take it to the bank. So the child, when you sit at that table, and you say, what if God simply has an empty plate for me? As you look at yesterday, and you look at what I've done, and you trust that I have a plan that you cannot see, but is for your eternal good. His love endures forever and ever and ever. And so the psalmist then pulls back, and he says, in spite of all the enemies that God's people face, God is greater. Uh, Their enemies in the Old Testament, of course, were uh, nations, the Canaanite nations. But as you look throughout the scripture, there really are three primary enemies that the people of God face, aren't there? One is sin itself. One is Satan, God's adversary. And one is death. And what we see is that the psalmist pulls us back and he says, God has always defeated his enemies. Don't you think he will down the line? Every trial you're facing is ultimately a consequence of sin, death, or Satan. And God's going to win for our eternal good despite the pain and the anxiety and the fear we feel now. So that in the final verses of Psalm 136, where the psalmist takes us then is we thank him for his salvation. We thank him for his salvation. Look at verses 23 to 25. It is he who remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. He rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. He says, when you and I were low, he pulled us up. When we were held in the grip of our enemies, He rescued. Uh, That Hebrew word for rescued actually has the idea of God uh, grabbing them and dragging them away from their enemies. That God is a God who saves. That when things are at their lowest point, his character remains the same. And he is always a God of salvation. And we don't often see his plan or the big picture. But he is working all things toward the day when sin, death, and Satan will be defeated once for all, and he will take his people and will rejoice forever with him. One of the most common themes in literature, in movies, is the idea of the damsel in distress, right? There is a a young woman, uh, usually some kind of romantic interest, and she gets herself captured or held by an enemy. And of course, the hero rushes in to save her. I just uh, thought off the top of my head, a short list of uh, movies or books that have that theme. Uh, Rapunzel, right? Rapunzel is locked in a tower by an evil witch, and she is saved by the prince. Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. Some of the movies that have this theme in more modern days, Taken, right? Uh, A man's daughter is actually Taken, right? And so he has to go and get her uh, back. There was apparently a follow-up, or not a follow-up, but a similar movie starring Nicolas Cage called Stolen, right? That was the same idea. Uh, None of us saw it, right? Because it didn't do very well. We'd already seen Taken, okay? Uh, Die Hard. There's a whole series of Die Hard movies revolving around this theme. There's like 29 Die Hard movies revolving around this theme. The Princess Bride. Even video games. Donkey Kong, one of the earliest popular video games, is a very simple premise. There's a princess who is uh, entrapped by a large gorilla, right? and you are trying to get her back. Donkey Kong, The Legend of Zelda, over and over and over again in literature and movies and video games. Why is that such a common theme? Here's why. Because it's biblical. As you look at the scripture, the people of God represent his bride. And God is the one who chases his people and grabs them from their enemies and saves them and brings them back to himself. And this is very literally true when you get to the book of Revelation. Watch what happens in the midst of the worst sin and devastation and pain in the flow of history. You know what happens? The heavens open up and the king comes riding in on a white horse. And he slays the dragon, Satan. And he claims his bride. And he marries her. And they have a big feast and they live happily ever after. If you want to know why this theme pops up in literature, it's because it's from the Bible. And all we can do as people made in God's image is copy what God has already done and said. Our God is a saving God. So that sin and death and Satan are ultimately subjected to his judgment. And destroyed First Corinthians chapter 15, great chapter about resurrection in the New Testament. For he, that is Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Whatever we face, whatever struggle we walked in here with this morning, we walk away fixing our eyes on the love of God that endures forever because He is powerful because he is good, because he loves us, and because he is working toward a day when every enemy will be destroyed. And he will keep his promise so that Paul can say in all sincerity in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He is a covenant-keeping God. We're going to take a moment and respond in worship. Tristan and the band are going to come back up. And as we sing, here's what I want us to reflect upon. What is it right now in your life, in my life, that we, we, we look and we say, God, are you, are you good? Do you care? Do you love me? And secondly, are you strong enough to deal with this? Can I trust That in in, in the final analysis, you have a plan that I may not see right now, but that you are working out for good. And will I be willing as I leave here not to say, you know what, I know how to fix my life or whatever is wrong, but I know who to look toward to trust that in me he is shaping my character so that I can know him and believe him despite what I see. What is it that you need to trust him with this morning and say his love endures forever and I can take that to the bank. Let's spend a few moments singing and reflecting. Let's pray. Dear God, we are grateful for what we just sang and what we just heard, that your love goes on and on and on and on and it lasts forever. Your steadfast, faithful, covenant love never dies, it never fails and is always with us. I pray that we would believe that. Father, many of us in this room, perhaps most, are facing trials and fear and anxiety. We feel the weight of your enemies and ours, of sin and death and Satan and we struggle to trust that you will win, but we know that you will. And so we look toward the end of the story. And Father, we pray that you would give us strength to take the next step, to persevere for the next day, and to remind ourselves day after day after day, your love endures forever and ever until the day we see Jesus again. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.